So our next speaker is Dr. Raj Gandhi, who is at the Mass General Hospital in Boston and uh, Harvard Medical School. Uh, Raj is, going, is here today to talk to us about the investigation on new agents. Um, he's going to talk some about uh, Bictegravir, which is no longer investigation, but since it's new re new, newly released, we thought we would cover it. And then we'll reinforce a lot of what he's talked about in the cases uh, later this morning. So welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks uh, to all of you for coming. Thanks to the organizers for inviting me. So I'm going to um, go through investigational approaches to antiretroviral therapy. Here are my disclosures. And here are my learning objectives. And what I'd like to do is um, put these investigational approaches into five contexts or five um, scenarios. And this may help you think about these investigational approaches as you think about particular patients of yours that, that may fit into these, these categories. So we'll start with talking about, are there any new options for initial treatment of HIV? We'll talk about, a bit about, are two antiretrovirals as good as or better than three? So we'll do a, a quick update on two-drug therapy. And I'll give you a scenario where you might think about that, clinical scenario. We'll talk about what are the options in someone who has difficulty taking daily drugs. So think about your patients there. And uh, we'll talk about long-acting agents in development. And then we'll talk about what are new medicines for treating someone who has multi-drug-resistant HIV. And then we'll conclude with a bit about what's on the horizon. So let's start with a case scenario. I'm going to ask you to take out your cell phones. Um, you're going to text your answer to the, the same number that you did before. So this is a case scenario of a person I saw recently, 29 years old. He's got a positive HIV antigen antibody test and a confirmatory test. But his HIV RNA, his genotype, his CD4 count, BUN creatinine, and his other labs are pending. And you decide to initiate same-day ART. And as um, Mike said, we're going to talk about that in some more detail over the course of the day. But if you're going to do this, what regimen would you choose? Would you choose a Favarin's TDF-FTC? Please go ahead and vote. Uh, Ropivirine, FTC-TAF. Alvitegavir, Kobe, FTC, TAF, Dalgutegavir, Abacavir, 3TC, Dalgutegavir plus FTC, TAF, or the newly approved Bictegavir, FTC, TAF. Not as quick on the uptake as Mike is about songs. Let's see. That was quick. <laughs> that was very quick. Someone should alert me if those numbers are up there. There we go. Looks like people like the last two options, uh, either Dalgutegavir FTC-TAF or Bictegavir FTC-TAF uh, preferentially. And I would agree. I, uh, let me give you uh, a couple of reasons why. Um, I wouldn't choose a Favarin's TDF-FTC because there still is a, a appreciable number of people who have transmitted drug resistance, and it's mostly to the NNRTI. So about 10 to 15% of people in the US will have transmitted drug resistance. Lepirvirine FTC-TAF I wouldn't choose because it's less effective if the viral load is over 100,000 or if the CD4 count is less than 200 and we don't know this person's numbers yet. Alvitegavir-Kobe uh, FTC-TAF is a reasonable option. It does, though, have a lower barrier to resistance than Dalgutegavir, so I, like you, would choose one of the latter two, uh, the last two. And then Dalgutegavir, Abacavir 3TC, you, you need to know the HLA-B5701 first, and um, even though you can get it in some places quickly, net you can't get it the same day. So I would uh, agree with you that it would be one of the last two options. 
And I want to just say a little bit about uh, the new drugs um, uh, in, in current classes. These are new drugs coming down the pike. One was approved last month, but I'll say a word about it. It's Bictegravir. And then we'll talk about a new uh, NNRTI called Duravirine. So these are drugs that you might be using for initial therapy. So Bictegravir. Bictegravir is an unboosted integrase inhibitor. It has a high barrier to resistance, like dolutegravir, and it has a low potential for drug-drug interactions. There have been phase three clinical trials in treatment-naive people, like the one we're uh, thinking about, comparing Bictegravir FTC-TAF directly to dolutegravir abacavir 3TC, and then a trial comparing Bictegravir FTC-TAF to dolutegravir FTC-TAF, the, the two options that we were most uh, positive about. In these trials, there was no difference in terms of biologic suppression, um, and there was no resistance, and that's an important point. As compared to dolutegravir abacavir 3TC, uh, there are similar changes uh, in EGFR and tubular proteinuria and bone mineral density and lipids. So this is really a comparison of TAF to abacavir, and they appear very, very similar. Uh, Jeff already presented one of the randomized switch studies uh, that was presented at CROI this year. If you switch someone who is already biologically suppressed to Bictegravir FTC-TAF, it seems to do as just as well as if you keep them on their, their prior regimen. So there's been two switch studies, one Jeff presented of switching from Dolutegravir Abacavir 3TC to this new combination, and then at IB week last year, there was a randomized study comparing switching off a boosted PI-containing regimen to this regimen, and it did fine. These are the treatment-naive studies, the two big treatment-naive studies. On, on your um, left, you'll see a Bacavir 3TC dolutegravir compared to TAF uh, FTC Bactegravir did just as well. And on your right, you'll see the head-to-head -head comparison of Bactegravir FTC TAF to dolutegravir FTC TAF, again, biologically the same. So a few kind of pearls around this. Uh, indications for this drug, um, this combination for initial treatment of people with HIV. And it's also indicated as a replacement for uh, people who are biologically suppressed as long as they don't have a history of treatment failure and have uh, known resistance to the components of this drug. It's one pill once a day, uh, with or without food, uh, but don't give it if the estimated creatinine clearance is below 30. Drug resistance, it is active in vitro against a whole bunch of HIV isolates that have other integrase resistance mutations, but clinically we don't know its efficacy in people who have prior integrase failure, integrase inhibitor failure, or integrase inhibitor resistance, so for now I would not use it there. Drug-drug interactions, it's contraindicated with rifampin. There was actually a, a study at CROI that really showed that even if you double the dose of Bictegravir, you can't overcome that rifampin interaction, and other rifamycins aren't recommended. We know that dolutegravir interacts with metformin, um, about 100% increase with dolutegravir and metformin, Bictegravir interacts with metformin, but to a lesser extent, about a 39% increase in AUC. At a study that was in ID week last year, there was no effect on glucose, but the label says uh, assess the benefit risk. So there is an effect, and if I have somebody on a very, very high dose of metformin, then I try to take that into account, and I would see if the metformin could go down. Bictegravir, like all integrase inhibitors, is chelated by polyvalent cations, so you've got to time it, you've got to separate it in time from, from magnesium and uh, calcium aluminum. Not recommended in pregnancy yet, it's, there's not enough data, and side effects, diarrhea, nausea, and headache. And then there is a small uh, effect on serum creatinine, about a 0.1 milligram per deciliter effect. It's not because of a decreased GFR, it's because of an inhibition of tubular secretion of creatinine. So now let's go on to an investigational a new drug. This is a, a drug called Duravirin. It's an NNRTI. 
This is active in vitro against HIV that's resistant to what you might call first generation NNRTIs. So it's active against virus that has K103N and also has uh, mutations like Y181C. This NNRTI is dosed once daily without regard to food. It's got pretty low potential for drug-drug interactions. And in a trial that was presented last year called um, Drive Ahead, Deravirine was competed head-to-head -head, uh, along with two other drugs against boosted darunavir. And you can see on the graphic um, uh, on the slide, there's really no daylight between the biologic uh, suppression curves between Deravirine and boosted darunavir. So the conclusion in this phase three trial is Deravirine is biologically non-inferior, the same as boosted darunavir. It did have a superior lipid profile than boosted darunavir. More recently, as, as another trial was presented, this was uh, comparing Deravirine head-to-head -head essentially against Efavirenz. So it's Deravirine 3TC TDF. We'll come back to the TDF part in a minute. Head-to-head -head against Efavirenz FTC tenofovir in treatment-naive people. So that was a one-to-one -one, uh, randomization. And the primary endpoint was viral load less than uh, 50 copies. Uh, these are the results. If you look over at those bars, essentially the Deravirine and Efavirenz did just as well. There was really no difference between Deravirine and Efavirenz. It was non-inferior in terms of virologic suppression. There were about 10% of people who had a viral load of over 50 copies in each arm. Virologic failures with Deravirine were not common, but they did occur about 6% of the time. And primary NNRTI resistance was not common. It was about 1.6%. And primary nuke resistance was a little under 1.5%. What were the conclusions for, from this study? Deravirine was as good as efavirenz virologically. It was better than efavirenz, superior in terms of a lower incidence of neuropsychiatric effects. That, that doesn't surprise people because of the efavirenz neuropsych effects. And it had more favorable changes in lipids uh, than did efavirenz. So where is this drug in terms of when it might be available? Uh, this past January, two months ago, uh, Deravirine TDF3TC was filed as a single uh, pill combination. And Deravirine alone was filed with the FDA. And it's anticipated that we'll know if it's approved by sometime this year. October this year is when people think it might be, um, you know, there may, there may be a, a decision on it. It's being developed, though, with TDF and 3TC um, and uh, Deravirin as a single pill combination. It would be very interesting if it's approved to see what its price turns out to be. Um, the TDF um, drug has uh, recently gone off uh, patent, and so it's available as a generic, so something to keep your eye on. Okay, so let's go on to a second case scenario. Now we're going to shift gears to a 50-year-old man who's got HIV. He's got diabetes, hypertension. He's got chronic renal insufficiency with a creatinine clearance of under 30, it's 25. His HV RNA is 30,000, his CD4 count is 450. His HLA B5701 positive. So you wanna choose a regimen because of his low creatinine clearance that avoids uh, TAF and TDF and you need to choose a regimen that avoids abacavir. So which of these uh, uh, regimens would you choose? So would you choose darunavir, cobacistat, plus FTC? Would you choose darunavir, ritonavir, plus raltegravir? Would you choose darunavir, ritonavir, plus dolutegravir? How about darunavir, ritonavir, plus 3TC? Dolutegravir, plus 3TC? Or dolutegravir, plus ropivirine? So let's see what you all think.
Kristen, do I see it on my screen when the numbers come up so I don't have to look up? Okay. Um, let's see. Okay. Someone might have to help me. It looks to me from here at least like the one in the middle. Jeff, is a dog detector plus uh that people like the most? Okay. And then some people like Dogotegavir plus Ripivirine and, um, and then kind of a scattering of votes. Uh, so let's go through this. this. This really brings up the topic of uh, either no nukes or in this case a few nukes. So we're going to talk about two drug therapy essentially. And we'll, this is an investigational approach so we'll talk about what, where we are with two drug therapy. So if you look at phase three randomized clinical trials that are big trials, there's only a couple of two drug therapies that have been in big phase three clinical trials so far. One is boosted lopinavir plus 3TC, that's the Gardel regimen. That was non-inferior to boosted lopinavir plus two nukes, but this is not a good regimen in uh, so far as it has a very high pill burden, it's got a lot of toxicity, and I think it's going to be rarely used. Boosted darunavir plus raltegavir, some of you voted for that, and I would agree this is a reasonable option to consider in this patient because this patient's CD4 count is pretty high and his viral load is 30,000. It's non-inferior to boosted darunavir plus two nukes, but if you stress the system, if your CD4 count is lower than 200 or if the viral load is over 100,000, then this two-drug nuke sparing regimen doesn't do quite as well. So what's coming down the pike? Jeff mentioned this briefly, but I'll show the data. Um, Dogutegavir plus 3TC is an interesting combination. What do we know about it for initial therapy? There was a very small study called PADL that had about 20 participants, all of whom had a viral load of less than 100,000, so they had a ceiling on it. And 90% of those 20 people did well with Dogutegavir plus 3TC, but that's small. The ACTG did a larger study called 5353. It was a phase two tr clinical trial, but it was a single arm. This time the ceiling for the viral load went all the way up to 100,000, I'm sorry, to 500,000, so a little higher. They enrolled a bigger uh, group of people, uh, a number of participants, it was 120 people. And on this table you see the results, essentially 90% of people suppressed, and it didn't seem to matter if your viral load was over 100,000 or less than 100,000. So in this single arm study, Dolly-Tegra 3TC looked fine. There were, however, and keep your eye on this, there were three virologic failures all of whom had suboptimal adherence. They could measure drug levels and the um, adherence was low. And one of patient developed an integrase resistance mutation. So the big trials that Jeff mentioned are Gemini 1 and 2. These are phase 3 clinical trials that are comparing dolutegavir 3TC to, um, to 3 drug therapy. And we think at the meeting in Amsterdam, which is this July, they may report out results. So we will see later this year if this 2 drug therapy um, kind of bears out for, for um, initial treatment. The ANDES trial is the trial that was uh, updated at CROI. This is boosted darunavir plus 3TC. It was about 145 people that compared three drug therapy to two drug therapy, boosted darunavir plus 3TC. And the viral load at 48 weeks was good in both arms. It was less than 50 copies and over 90%. And again, it didn't seem to matter if the viral load was more than 100,000 people did well. So this looks promising and um, our larger trial is ongoing. I would say this is a reasonable regimen, I think, to consider. It's not hundreds of people, but if in a situation where you don't have, we don't yet have enough, I think, information on dolutegavir 3TC to recommend it routinely uh, for initial therapy. This uh, regimen is reasonably well tolerated and it's, um, it's got some data behind it. 
Now, once you're biologically suppressed to drug therapy, you've got plenty of options, okay? So once you've got a patient biologically suppressed, there are many trials saying that you can switch that person to a boosted PI plus 3TC. Here are some of those trials, but that, that does work well. Um, there's a trial going on called Duralis, which is people who are biologically suppressed, can you switch them to dalutegravir plus boosted darunavir? That was one of the, the favorite regimens of, of the group, um, and that's, that's underway. What does look promising for switching is dalutegravir 3TC. There's um, one single-arm study called Lamadol that looked good. There's a medium-sized randomized study called um, Aspire that looked good switching people, and then a large phase three clinical trial with over 500 people called Tango was just launched last month or sometime this year. And that's gonna really answer the question, once you're biologically suppressed, can you really switch people safely to dalutegravir 3TC? But there's, there's favorable evidence, just not definitive evidence. Well, there is definitive evidence, and what's now FDA approved, this is not investigational, is once you're biologically suppressed, you can safely switch people to dalutegravir plus ropivirin. This was a phase three clinical trial, over 1,000 patients. Important point though, these people had not had biologic failure, um, or they had not switched because of biologic failure, so do keep that in mind. If you've got someone who's had biologic failure and has a whole bunch of resistance, this is, there's not enough evidence for this. But if you've got someone who is suppressed, hasn't had biologic failure before, dalutegravir uh, uh, pivoting looks good. You can see the biologic results there. Looks just as good as continuing three drug therapy. It is a single pill regimen, quite a small pill. Do remember though that ropivirin you've got to take with food and you've got to avoid or be cautious with acid lowering therapy. And then of course the dalutegravir um, um, cation considerations. Okay, so uh, third case. This is someone that I take care of. He's 55 years old. He's got HIV. He also has achalasia and dysphagia. He has had a dickens of a time taking uh, oral pills, has long-standing difficulty swallowing his pills. With a lot of effort on his uh, part, he's biologically suppressed right now on dalutegravir plus ropivirin. But he asked me every time I, he sees me um, whether there are long-acting HIV medicines that he could take intermittently instead of having to take a daily oral regimen. So what is your thoughts? Is there a long-acting antiretroviral medicine? Uh, yes. No. Not yet. Or I don't know. So let's see what, what people think. Okay, so it looks like, um, I think that's saying not yet is the most favored, which I think is right. Yes, um, we'll see, we'll see where we are with them and then, um, so yeah, I think not yet is, is a good answer. Okay, so I would say this is the um, regimen that's furthest along in terms of a long-acting regimen and you may have heard about Cabotegravir. Cabotegravir is an integrase inhibitor, but it can be nano-formulated so it can last for months. And so can ropivirin. So there are intramuscular forms of these two drugs, ropivirin and NNRTI, can be nano-formulated. So a trial that was presented last year um, that I'll, I'll update you on in a moment is called LATTE2, a kind of an appealing name for a, a clinical trial. This took people who um, were um, suppressed, they put them all on a Bacavir 3TC plus an oral version of cabotegravir, got them virologically suppressed, and then randomized them to either continue the oral drug, oral cabotegravir um, plus a Bacavir 3TC, 
or to switch to cabotegravir given intramuscularly either every four weeks or every eight weeks, so 12 times a year or six times a year. These are the results you can see. Um, I'll try to point this out. So in the blue kind of a blue line, you see 84% of people at week 96 on the oral regimen were virologically suppressed. 87% who were switched to the monthly cabotegravir plus ropivirine, that's in the green, were virologically suppressed. And 94% of the people who were switched to the every two month uh, intramuscular combination were virologically suppressed. You can see kind of in the middle part of that slide that virologic failure was quite uncommon. And so where are we with this? So in terms of re, um, side effects, injection site reactions were common, uh, but they were generally mild to moderate and they were fairly transient. There was high participant satisfaction. Now remember everyone in this trial agreed to be randomized to an injection, so there was a kind of a selected group, but there was high participant satisfaction. So where is this particular combination? So there's an on, there are two ongoing phase three clinical trials, they're called FLARE and ATLAS, that are looking at every four week dosing of cabotegravir plus ropivirine, and results are expected sometime this calendar year, so keep your eye on that. There's also a trial called ATLAS-2M, I remember it as two months, which is looking at every eight week dosing and results are expected next year. I'm told that you can, through um, limited expanded access even now, get uh, cabotegravir plus ropivirine for people who have malabsorption or who have very advanced disease who are having adherence problems, and I see Jeff nodding, um, uh, so there is some experience getting it. But we will probably know this year in a phase three clinical trial uh, whether this uh, long-acting agent is, is going to bear out. One that's further behind is a long-acting uh, drug. It's a new class. It's a nucleoside RT translocation inhibitor, so it's a NRTTI, another acronym to remember. It's called MK8591, something called EFDA. It's got a long half-life, over 100 hours or so, and in humans, in that um, graphic that you can see on, on your right, a single oral dose, as low as 0.5 milligrams, gets the viral load down by over a, by over a log uh, within a week, so it's a really tiny dose of, of this drug. At Crow this year, there was a study in healthy volunteers with this drug, and they uh, estimate using drug levels that they think that as little as 0.25 milligrams, so really tiny, is expected to lead to HIV uh, suppression. So where is this drug in clinical development? There's a phase 2B trial in people with HIV where they're combining EFDA with deravirine and 3TC. It's called Drive to Simplify. In this study, it's not being dosed intermittently. It's being dosed uh, daily. Now, what's also exciting about uh, MK8591 is in animals, it accumulates in, in all sorts of tissues. And in animals also, it's been shown to protect uh, monkeys from a rectal shiv challenge at really tiny doses. It also can be uh, parenterally dosed. And in that graphic on, on your right, uh, the graphic here, it lasts for somewhere between 6 to 12 months when given parenterally. And it is really, therefore, being in, uh, a drug of interest for things like PrEP and even for long-acting implantable therapy. At one of the retrovirus meet, um, uh, presentations, they estimated that as little as 0. Uh, 250 micrograms of this drug given once a week might be effective for PrEP. Remember, a drug like Lopivirine is 25 milligrams, so this is 100-fold uh, less than that for, for PrEP. So keep your eye on this. This is still working its way through investigational trials. Uh, but is a potential for a long-acting uh, agent, for, uh, particularly for PrEP. 
Okay, so now we're gonna go on to resistance and highly drug resistance. What are our options for our patients who have essentially run out of all other options? So this is an, uh, a, a woman, 60 years old, who's got HIV from 1990, multiple previous regimens, has an HIV RNA uh, that's 20,000, CD4 count that's um, 150. Her phenotype, no need to, to delve into it, but her virus is resistant to essentially all nukes, all NNRTIs, all PIs, and is sensitive to integrase inhibitors. So which of the following classes of drugs are in or have just completed uh, phase three clinical trials? So this is kind of looking to the future for, for how to resist an HIV. So entry attachment inhibitors, go ahead and vote. Uh, maturation inhibitors, capsid inhibitors, or broadly neutralizing antibodies? <laughs> Looks like a kind of a smattering of opinion, but most people said that the first one and then some are um, interested in these broadly neutralizing antibodies. So where are we with drugs for highly drug-resistant HIV? And, and that's this, what this patient brings up. So Jeff had a New Hope uh, slide as well. Here's another New Hope uh, slide. So these are two drugs that are um, either have completed or in, are in phase three clinical trials. One is called ibilizumab that we'll talk about, and then fostemzivir, which we'll mention. These are entry inhibitors. So remember, when HIV enters a cell, it binds to CD4, it binds to the co-receptor, and then the virus and cell fuse. In fulvertide, an uh, older drug, that is at the very uh, end of that, which is the virus cell fusion. Moraviroc is on the co-receptor side. And the two drugs that are completed or are in phase three clinical trials are uh, entry inhibitors at the, at the first part of that, that um, uh, stepwise process. One is called fostemzivir, and one is called ibilizumab. And, we'll, and those, that's where it works, and we'll get into both of those. So ibilizumab, this is a monoclonal antibody. It's humanized. It binds to CD4 in that graphic I showed you before on the host cell, and therefore it blocks the virus from getting in by binding um, to CD4. It's a post-attachment inhibitor. It's active against virus that's either CCR5 or CXCR4 tropic. There's no cross-resistance with other ARVs. At CROI, there was a presentation on that. The way you give it, um, and the way it's been given in trials, is it's an IV infusion a 2,000 milligram loading dose, and then every two weeks at 800 milligrams. I looked this up, it, it, um, it's about 30 minutes or so to, for the first loading dose, and then 15 minutes or so for the uh, maintenance doses. You can't give it by IV push. So here are the phase three clinical trials. This was a phase three clinical trial with 40 participants, and the reason for it being such a small trial is this is a very targeted group of people. These were 40 heavily treatment-experienced patients, all of whom had three-class ARV resistance. They did have to have one active drug or more. The primary endpoint for this phase three clinical trial is what happens in the first week or so of giving the drug. And so during the control period before they got the drug, only 3% had a drop in viral load. Within a short time after giving the drug, 83% had a viral load drop of over 0.5 logs. So that was one of the primary endpoints is, could this drug lower viral load? After the loading dose, so after you got that loading dose, then in this trial, they optimized the regimen. They combined it with oral drugs. And remember, people had to have one active uh, drug that they could find. And sometimes that was an investigational drug, like Fostemzivir. At ID week this year, they showed the week 24 
I'm sorry, um, last year at RD Week, they showed the week 24 results. About 50% of people could suppress with ibilizumab plus other drugs at week 24. And then at RD Week in 2017, they showed the 48-week results. And in most instances, if you got biologically suppressed on ibilizumab plus other drugs, you could stay biologically suppressed. That's what those two figures show. So this drug, I actually had it uh, initially as an investigational drug, just got approved last week. Um, it is approved for people with highly drug-resistant HIV, and it's for uh, this intravenous um, administration. Its cost, just for the drug alone, is about $118,000 estimated per year. Uh, but this is for this really narrow group of people who have no other options. So. A drug that's a, uh, another investigational drug that's in an attachment inhibitor category is called Fostemzivir. This binds to GP120 and then inhibits HIV from getting into the cell. There was a trial, uh, phase three trial presented late last year called BRIGHT, and it was in heavily treatment experienced patients. The randomized cohort was in people who were heavily treatment experienced but had at least one or two active other drugs available. And they got the Fostemzivir or a placebo for a short period of time, and then they all rolled over to Fostemzivir plus optimized background regimen. And then, this is a really interesting cohort, a non-randomized cohort that had no active drugs left, and they essentially got open-label Fostemzivir plus an optimized background regimen. These are the results. So the primary endpoint here is, what do you do in the first eight days, placebo versus Fostemzivir? You can see the blue on that curve is the Fostemzivir, people's viral load went down much more, to a much greater degree if they got the new drug. What was the bottom line at week 24? About 50% of randomized patients, the ones that had at least one other active drug, got biologically suppressed. And even in the non-randomized cohort, the group that had no other active drugs, a little over a third got biologically suppressed. So where is this? Essentially, it's being manufactured. They're trying to now manufacture it to the point that they can um, submit for an FDA approval. And what I read at least, and when I talk to people who are in the know, they think that it'll be 2019 or 2020 before they submit this for regulatory submissions. I don't believe this is very easily gotten as expanded access in part because of limited supplies. Maturation inhibitors, some of you uh, voted for that. Um, these were in clinical trials, but this past um, year, they were halted because of GI toxicity. So they're trying to develop other ones, but the one that was furthest along that is not uh, moving forward. So let me conclude in the last couple of minutes with what's on the horizon. We'll just say a word about broadly neutralizing antibodies because you're hearing a lot about them. And then we'll have one slide on other novel agents and then we'll sum up. So broadly neutralizing antibodies, they bind the HIV envelope, okay? So they bind the virus, not the host. So ibilizumab binds CD4. These bind the virus. And there's all sorts of parts of the virus where these broadly neutralizing antibodies can latch onto. These are now in small clinical trials, not phase three by any means. Uh, one that uh, came out a couple, uh, last year was take people on ART, give them a broadly neutralizing antibody, this one is called 3BNC117, uh, and then stop the ART and see how long they can keep biologically suppressed. In these trials, they're often only giving a couple of doses of these BNABs. And in that red line versus the black line in that Kaplan-Meier, you can see that if you give a couple of doses of the BNAB, you can delay time to virus rebound. The red is the antibody group, the black line is the um, people who uh, didn't get the BNAM. So it has an antiviral effect, but this is just a short-term effect. There are similar results with another BNAB called VRCA1. 
But the bottom line is just like we learned with antiviral drugs, you know, pills, uh, small molecules, you've got to uh, combine these. And so those combination trials are being uh, conducted right now. There's a couple of them uh, being conducted, both for treatment um, and for prevention. So the obvious question is, why would you take an antibody versus a single uh, pill? If we can get these antibodies to work, maybe you can engineer them so that they last six months, or maybe you can engineer them so that the body makes these antibodies, and could that then replace daily ART? I think that's where people are thinking about them, and then people are also thinking about them for reservoirs. This is my last slide, and then I'll summarize. Other investigational agents, investigational agents that are in the pipeline, there's an entry inhibitor called combinectin. Uh, there's a new nuke called uh, GS9131. There's a monoclonal antibody called UB421, and then there's a protease inhibitor. Capsid inhibitor was mentioned um, by some of you. That is in clinical development, but further behind, and then there are uh, maturation inhibitors. Okay, so this is my summary. New options for initial treatment, Bictegavir FTC-TAF was approved last month. Duravirin and NNRTI is under FDA review. Two-drug therapy is advancing. Um, Dodutegavir plus 3TC, boosted durinavir plus 3TC are being studied for initial therapy. And uh, for maintenance, once you're suppressed, Dodutegavir ropivirin is fine to use. It's, it's available. What are those options for people of your, uh, patients of yours who can't take a daily drug? Keep your eye on uh, cabotegavir ropivirin, results expected this year. And further behind is EFDA. What do you give to someone who's got highly, highly resistant drug, um, drug-resistant HIV? Ibilizumab got approved last week. Fosetemzavir is through phase three and other agents being developed. And what's on the horizon? Keep your eye on BNABs and uh, many others. So with that, I'm gonna stop and thank you all uh, for your attention. Great, thanks so much, Raj. Um, so, um, before you came to the course, we sent out a pretest. Uh, how many of you all took that pretest? Good. How many of you thought it was hard? Yeah, it was. The average response of correct answers is about 26%. Um, so, the goal is to get, we hopefully are covering all this, so at least in my talk, I'm gonna hammer home the point that, of my trick question, which I apologize for in advance. Um, so we'll, go, we'll get into that as the day goes on. But I'm sure everybody will do a lot better. Um, so first question, Raj. Um, how active is carbotegravir against strains with resistance mutations to other integrases? Yeah, so cabotegravir, um, I think of as very similar to dolutegravir. So I think just like dolutegravir, um, is active against some virus that's resistant to raltegravir and alvaltegravir. I think cabotegravir probably will do the same. I don't think there's clinical data on that, though, so it's, it's one that you base on kind of in vitro uh, activity. But I think of cabotegravir as quite similar to dolutegravir. Right. This question is about use of 3TC in a dual regimen, let's say dolutegravir 3TC, and um, the activity when it's uh, wild-type virus, but when you have a two-drug regimen and the M184V is there, yeah. um, is there still uh, activity and what do you do there? Yeah, that's a, a great question and we may come back to that um, over the course of the well, day. I think we will. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we all know that 3TC and FTC sensitize the virus to AZT, to D4T, and to tenofovir. That, that's clear. So if you've got virus that's got M184V, that same virus is more sensitive to AZT, D4T, and tenofovir. Um, when you combine it with protease inhibitors, when you combine it with dolutegravir, you obviously don't have those other nukes on board because you're doing two-drug therapy. 
So it is, I would find it um, um, potentially concerning to use two-drug therapy in someone with M184V now. At Retrovirus this year, there was a group in Italy that presented on a retrospective study where they took a whole bunch of people who had M184V and they looked at continuing three-drug therapy versus having them on two-drug therapy. And when they compared the people on three-drug therapy to two-drug therapy, the rate of viral rebound in people who had M184V was not different, but there were more blips, okay? So if you went from, um, you had M184V, you put them on two-drug therapy, there were more viral blips uh, in that group. So I, I still personally would not uh, do it routinely. I mean, I'd have to almost be forced to in terms of, you know, with the three drugs, you, for some reason you can't give them. Um, but I think that's what we know right now is it, it's probably, many instances you might get away with it, but I'm not comfortable doing it routinely. So. Okay, this is a question about TDF and 3TC. Yeah. Wondering, if, is that okay? Uh, I thought tenofovir TDF was always with FTC. Yeah, so good question. So uh, back in the day um, when we were all doing different clinical trials. The first trials with TDF uh, were with 3TC. So when we were comparing TDF to say D4T, um, they were done with, with 3TC. It is true in this country because of fixed dose formulations, we almost always give TDF with FTC because they come together. But in the rest of the world, there's plenty of people, there's probably millions of people who are on TDF plus 3TC and they are doing just fine. There have been uh, studies and people have talked about whether somehow TDF-FTC is better than TDF-3TC. There was a study in a group called the Athena cohort, which kind of tried to tease this out and they concluded that TDF-FTC was better, but that was severely questioned because the error that you were getting TDF-3TC in the Athena cohort, they were con con conjoining it with less good drug, you know, less potent drugs. So they may have been confounding is what I'm trying to say. My own personal opinion is I do think that TDF3TC is as good as TDF-FTC, and I would feel comfortable. Um, you know, if there's a generic for TDF3TC, as they, there is now, as of a few weeks ago, I do think you can use TDF3TC with your third, third. I don't think you have to use FTC. I don't know, Mike, if you have a different opinion. No, I agree with you, yeah. yeah. No. Um, this is a question about um, advantages of boosted darunavir with ritonavir and 3TC as opposed to boosted darunavir and copacistat with 3TC. Yeah. yeah. So the Andy study, as, as Jeff mentioned, done in um, Argentina, um, uh, that looked at boosted darunavir with, with ritonavir. So it was, uh, in Argentina, apparently, they've got ritonavir and darunavir in the same pill, and that was with 3TC, and it, it looked good, as you saw. About 145 people, so it wasn't a massive trial, but it looked good. I would think that cobacistat plus darunavir and, and 3TC would work, but we don't, we don't know. And, you know, we just have zero data on it. So probably right now, if I were to use it, I would probably use it um, with ritonavir just because that's what we know. So. Question here. Just revisiting the M184V again. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we argue about this in our clinic all the yeah, time. I yeah. just kind of started in this clinic with some older physicians that have been there forever and kind of ruled. And so when they have M184V with something like Genvoya, they still want to add another drug or, or with um, Descovy and Ditegavir. Yeah. And I'm kind of okay with that, What I'm not okay with if you're on like a Vacavir, 3TC, and Ditegavir. That makes yeah. me more so, nervous with, with the Vacavir as yeah. that part of the yeah. backbone. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. So this is going to, this precise question is on the cases at 11.15. So Stay it's okay to <laughs> defer to the panel for discussion. but. That's exactly how I came <laughs> up with the questions is people asking from the clinic. So perfect. 
It's a great setup. Thank you Good. for the I'm advertisement. Like, we can, yeah. <laughs> <Wait. Okay. laughs> I can answer that. So. so without looking at a package insert, because it doesn't exist, they want to know where you think Duravarine will be indicated when it's ultimately all said and done. Okay, so that is a, a good question. So Duravarine, I think, is as good as Ephedrine. Duravarine is as good as Bistadrinavir. But as of not so long ago, all of those are, are not our first-line regimens anymore, mainly because of tolerability. What hasn't been done is a Duravarine versus integrase inhibitor head-to-head -head comparison, and I think that would be an incredibly important trial to, trial to, to see. Um, but um, as best, you know, it does look as good as two other regimens that, that we used until very, very recently, the first line. Um, so I think, I think what will be interesting is whether its cost will be substantially lower, which it might be, and where that's going to end up in the armamentarium. I, I do think it's going to be a good option. Is it going to be as good as um, integrase inhibitors? We just don't have the head-to-head -head trials to say with certainty. There is a little bit of resistance with Duravarine. Um, there hasn't been uh, substantial resistance. In fact, in treatment-naive people, you really have a hard time finding resistance to dolutegravir and bictegravir. They haven't, haven't been seen. So. Okay. In the cabotegravir ropivirine studies injections, um, how do you explain or think about the success of the every eight-week uh, regimen versus the every four-week? Yeah, that was interesting. So that oscillated back and forth a little bit. Um, initially, they thought that the every four week might be a tiny bit better than the every eight week, which is why they designed the, the big trials, um, the ones that are going to get reported out this year with every four week. But then when you carried it all the way out to 96 weeks, then at least numerically, the every eight week looked just as good, actually slightly better than the every four week. It may be, um, you know, it's just six times a year instead of 12 times a year, so maybe people adhere to it better, came in for more appointments. Um, so, so that may be one, one explanation. So uh, half as many times in the clinic. As best I understand with this drug, it's not one that people can easily give at home. I think it's in the gluteus um, yeah, medius, yeah. Uh, not the maximus. It's the gluteus medius. It's a tough place to find by yourself. And, uh, and so what I understand, and it's a couple of milliliters of, of injection. So it's, right now it's, um, yeah, it's clinic administered. It's so. two cc's yeah. per injection, yeah. so it's not something um, so in the, in the Dolutegravir 3TC switch study, um, how, did they do any kind of assessment for integrase resistance up front? So in the switch, so in the Lamidol study, which is a single arm study, I think they had to not have resistance to any other drugs, but they didn't do integrase resistance. Um, in the um, ACTG study, which was a treatment naive study, they did do integrase resistance and, and, um, and then in uh, the SPAR study, again, I think once you're suppressed, they weren't doing integrase resistance because th those suppressed trials were taking people who had viral loads less than 50, and they, won't do, they weren't doing this pro-viral genotype or anything like that. So. Yeah. Okay, and then uh, this is a question just kind of hypothetically. So the, uh, the question was about a recent internal medicine conference. Uh, Fetalizumab was used as treatment for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and, and the way it works, part of it is to prevent T-cell entry into the gut. And this suggests uh, to the person asking the question that that might clear reservoirs from yeah. the gut. Any okay. thoughts on that? Yeah, so the, the drug that I think they're talking about is called uh, vetalizumab. Vetalizumab is given for Crohn's disease. And um, just to make sure, for clarity, the drug I was talking about here is ibilizumab, which is, um, you know, all these maps kind of sound the yeah. same, but, but that one is um, for HIV. So vetalizumab, the Crohn's disease drug, um, it's an anti-integrin antibody, and in a trial that got a lot of publicity last two years ago, in monkeys, if you gave monkeys who got infected with SIV ART plus vetalizumab, 
and then you stopped the ART and the vedolizumab, most of those monkeys bounced around a little bit, but then they controlled the virus. And the theory, and the person's absolutely right, the theory is that maybe um, vedolizumab is affecting T cells getting into the gut because it's an anti-integrin antibody. That particular human concept, vedolizumab, uh, is being studied at the NIH. It's a single-arm study, and we are waiting you know, on tender hooks to see what they find as to whether you can give vedolizumab and then stop ART, uh, but um, not, not, we don't know the results yet. So. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Raj. Uh, one comment I'll make um, is that w when I started the 1917 clinic back in the late 80s, um, we had a conference every Friday, and I'd started off with the Yiddish word of the day. And uh, one of the Yiddish words that I used was a word called ibel, which uh, in Yiddish basically sort of translates into nauseated. <laughs> and so I don't know how these drug names are, are derived, but the notion of a drug be called, called ibelizumab uh, sort of gets my attention. And, um, but I don't think it causes nausea. Uh, so it's, it's inappropriately named. So thanks. Thanks, Raj. Okay. Great. Yep. Thank you.